and welcome back to Fox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Mr. Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Katya. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. It's going. You know, the world continues. <laughs> the world continues. Okay, so last last thing I know is that we learned last week that Katya is now... You know, nice and COVID immune with all of her shots and has passed up her time period for full immunity. So are you going and taking advantage of it? Have you licked a doorknob yet? Mav, I hate you. <laughs> you do not. <laughs> I just I, I, you got to take advantage of COVID immunity. It's the coolest thing. <sighs> I mean, all of this is true. Have you gone to a restaurant? Have you done anything? I, I have gone to a restaurant. Uh, actually, no, I've I've gone to a bar. Very exciting. Um, which was nice. You know, it was nice to like be around human beings. On the other it's hand, weird. it was also yeah. very upsetting to be around human beings. Uh, I feel like yeah. my, my introvert brain has kicked into high gear and yep. is really unsettled by the idea of human interaction. Um, I feel like this is... I, I am one of those outgoing introvert weirdos. Uh, so I feel like this is an especially weird experience where it's like, I both want to be around the people, but also my body resists. Same, same, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's some bizarreness even for me. Like, I, you know, I, I've had time to like sort of enjoy being able to just yes, go to our. We've been playing pub trivia again, which was neat. But then it's also like, you know, I'm, I'm in a room. It's, well, we're outdoors. We're still doing the outdoor bar thing. But, but still, there's like 50 people there and it just, it feels wrong. It feels like yeah. this, this, is, this yeah. is too much. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. Easing back into it. Yeah. It, it, it's a very strange sensation mm-hmm. yep. so anyway it's not what we're talking about today no, no. um we're talking about today this is a kind of an extension of, of what we talked about last week last week we had um what i thought was an important show it's the one that we were looking forward to for a long time we, we had the male gaze show and we said on that show that one of the reasons we were doing it was because we had some guests coming up who wanted to talk about extensions to the male gaze so that's what we're doing this week we're doing an extension to the male gaze and so this one this first one it's called the fanboy gaze and this is an interesting theory this came about um well i'm gonna i'm gonna introduce the person who came up with the concept uh this is my friend matt lynn hey matt hey how's it going so matt i met a few weeks ago when he was on my other show he was on gosh golly wow and you talked about this concept um and i wanted to like talk about it more but before that i just i want to give people a chance to like you know know who you are so Matt, who are you? Um, well, I'm my name is Matt Linton. Uh, I am a graduate student at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I'm technically in the English department, but I do film and media studies. And even beyond that, I do comic studies, which doesn't actually exist there, but I am the representative <laughs> of it. Um, uh, I, I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. so I'm sort of cobbling together the thing that I want to study. I feel like this is the official podcast of technically I am in X department, but I do X. <laughs> Which doesn't really exist. I do a thing that doesn't really exist. Yes. Or at least, yeah. yeah, it doesn't exist in the place that I do it. it this is, this is, we, we are those people. Uh, yes. It, it, us. Yeah. And so, like, as a grad student, I do that thing where I have an idea and I say the idea and people are like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, oh, shit. What does that mean? <laughs> 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 no. 
That's how this came about. Yeah, yeah, that's um, and so I guess we should give people academia for those of you who are listening who are not academics, all two of you. Uh, that's how <laughs> academia works. It's sort of like I have an idea, and everyone's like, "Yeah, that seems plausible. Let's talk about that." Yeah, it, well, and that's that's really what this was because so we were, we had a we had a conversation briefly on Gosh Golly Wow about uh, about the male gaze as it relates to one character named Kitty Pride, and Matt, you said. Well, you said you thought of her as more of inhabiting a female gaze. And then we talked about it for a good five minutes. And then we went on to other topics. But I was just like, no, no, no. I I, I really want to spend a good deep, a good hour deep diving on this. So so, um, just, I guess, for context, when you say fanboy gaze and if people haven't seen the blog, we, you know, we wrote I wrote up a blog giving giving some of my thoughts of it and some of my conversations with Matt, which you can see at VoxPopcast.com. But for the listeners, what do you mean by fanboy gaze when you say it? Yeah, so I guess in a nutshell, if the male gaze, if the if the simplified version of the male gaze is like, you know, here are women that exist in media that are positioned to be looked at by men and desired by men, that a fanboy gaze is something a little different. There's still like this aspect of desire, but there's also this aspect of identification. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the starting point of like, you look at Kitty Pride, and, you know, especially like, you know, we talked about this on the podcast, like you and I were both like teenage boys at the time that she was a teenage girl in comics. She still mm-hmm. sort of is, but like at the time. Um, and so it's a character that like was appealing to us, but not appealing to us in the same way that say like, you know, Wonder Woman or Storm or someone was. Those are grownups. Yeah, yeah, those are grownups. <laughs> Kitty Pride seems obtainable. She has this like girl next doorness or something, but it's also something slightly different somehow, which is one of the things I'm still thinking about from like the sort of the Mary Sue of like, here's a character who's super special and super cool. And don't you love her? Um, like Kitty Pride is a character that you think of as like, we could be really good friends. Also, she's kind of cute and maybe she'll kiss me someday or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also you, you kind of, you know, she's, she's not just, you're not just looking at her. And this goes into some of what Katya was saying last week with the um, with the way video game characters work, right? Like you're supposed to also kind of want to be Kitty, yeah, you know, in a way mm-hmm. that like is not not typically typically for the male gaze. The narcissism aspect of it, the exhibitionism ex- aspect, is only supposed to apply to heteronormative women. You're supposed to associate yourself with the female character and think, oh, I could be pretty, just like you know, insert you know, Marilyn Monroe or whoever. And right. Kitty Pride is Kitty Pride. You're supposed to, you're supposed to admire yeah. Kitty Pride as a boy. Yeah. Well, you know, reading that as it's coming out because I'm old, uh, which I keep bringing up on the show, but you know, I, I was reading that series as it came out and I, I was in my teens at the time and she wasn't exactly point of view character, but you know, when she came in, there was this sense of here's this team that we've seen get together and they're all adults. I mean, you know, the original X-Men were supposed to be teenagers, but Wolverine and Banshee and these people, they, they were adults. They, you know, Peter was young, but for the most part, they felt like adults. And she came in as this kind of wide-eyed, innocent being thrown in the middle of that, which is what we all wanted to be at that time. We all wanted to be mm-hmm. in the X-Men. We were young, so that she there was that certain, yes, we projected you know, our point of entry into mm-hmm. that team onto her in a way that mm-hmm. was different than I did with the other characters when they were introduced on the team. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter if you're a boy. And Now, that's that's typical of the male gaze assumes that's going to happen for women, right? Um, particularly, and again, Tati, you said it's better than it used to be like in video games like, like I mean I think this is true of nerd culture in general in general I was actually talking with uh, with some other lady gamers about this the other day it's it is better the problem is the 
bar was on the floor. Yeah, yeah, um, right, right. Like, because because like, literally since video games began, it's like you're a girl, but you're going to play Mario because Mario's the hero. Damn it, and deal with it. You know. Well, I've talked yeah. about on the, on the show before with video games in particular, but I think a lot of nerd culture is the, the like. Okay, so I always talk about gaming because like we have the genre, the RPG. Mm-hmm. Every video game played by a woman or somebody who's basically anyone who's not a, who's not a straight white male, you are always role playing because you are always being expected to identify with somebody that with a straight white guy um, mm-hmm. and a particular and not just a straight white man, but a particular kind of projection of masculinity mm-hmm. uh, that fits that genre. Usually like very manly men. I'm going to go to war and shoot things and trauma is not real. <laughs> and I think and there's a whole bunch of reasons why like I think that the relationship for women and queer folks and all kinds of things is different than for straight guys. Um, and I'm not saying that like straight guys are horrible people for like playing games that look like them. Uh, and and some of us have a tough time identifying with that archetype as well. You know, we, exactly. we're, being forced, we're, we're being performative when we play those games. Ex- exactly. I mean, I think in uh, in many ways, I think the reason that came about in gaming is because there was a population, and I'm not saying everybody, but there was a population of developers that that kind of like toxic masculinity was an aspirational thing for them. Yes. Um, and, let me, and let me footnote my comment in that it's so easier for me to make that performance than it is for women and queer people, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. So, but I mean, yeah. I think that the, the point is, and I think to your point, Wayne, I think of the gaming industry and I would imagine other industries too have come around to the idea that like having just that as the only archetype available is really alienating for lots of people for lots of different yeah. reasons. And so as we talked about in the last episode, the point is not like we're not going to have the, that particular archetype. It's the point is we need to have options for people who don't identify with that archetype mm-hmm. um, or playing as an archetype feels icky um anyway that was not really your question but yeah it's gotten it's gotten better i i do have a question just to like make sure i understand what the fanboy gaze is what differentiates this from like the manic pixie dream girl uh, okay that is a good question actually a really good friend of mine that was her first question too which was like uh, so it's kind of like a manic pixie dream girl i think the difference is the manic pixie dream girl for me is more a desirability thing it's mm-hmm. the like, you know, I desire this person. And then there's that aspect of like, and this person is going to like make me cool enough so that they will desire me, basically. Um, whereas for me, the fanboy gaze is it's this weird combination of like it's identification and desire, but it's identification with a character that also has some level of like marginalization the way I'm thinking about it. Like, you know, mm. the Kitty Pride thing is like, oh, they're a nerd like me. You know, yeah. that's the thing that like they're young like I am. They're not quite as much a part of the team as like the other X-Men are. Therefore, I can identify with that and relate to that um, in a way that like, you know, maybe the Manic Pixie Dream Girl works a little bit like that, too. But, like, isn't this person weird? But it's usually about dragging someone who is like whatever normal but broken into being comfortable being not normal and broken. Um, Whereas this is a way of like, I think maybe it gives you the sort of proximity to acceptance when you recognize that you can't fully be accepted. Because one of the things I wanted to talk about that I thought like I should probably get at early because I didn't bring it up at all on the other podcast is like defining like the fanboy versus like just, you know, a basic like, you know, dude. Dude. Yeah. Yeah, I do think there's a distinction though. I think Mm -hmm. it's like, it is this like, this sort of mythic, like in comics, especially 
and maybe video games to some extent, like this idea of like you're 10 to 15 years old, you're, you know, cishet, like white, like straight white guy. Um, you're you're a fan, but you have like fanish behaviors, too. You're not just like it's not just that you play video games. You're obsessed with video games. You're not just you don't just read comics. You're like special about comics like you're you're specially interested in comics. Um, and so you're marginalized because of that societally. Um, and so those traits also tend to get put into the character that I think of as like, you know, occupying this fanboy gaze of like they exist on these margins too does that make sense mm-hmm. you're nerd nerd, <gasps> nerd as a culture so yeah you're, yeah you're seeing you're, you're so it, so here's here's where where i thought it was interesting because i and, and i'm and i'm I, I still don't know if i can enumerate it like great like but uh, but i but i feel like if we start naming characters you could say this one fits this one's a minute fits each yeah. girl. and and so i think that as i understand it the way you're using it you i i absolutely see why um why i want to say um uh, i'm going to say kitty pride fits right and I see why I see why Kitty Pride fits. Um, I'm guessing Kamala Khan fits from yes. more modern comics. And I would guess probably you'd put Willow there from Buffy. But Buffy becomes a little too cool. Yeah, Buffy is too much the center of things like she's she's too aspirational because I do think there's like there is something aspirational about the like, you know, I don't know, the fanboy girl, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's a different type of aspiration. It's like a, a it's an obtainable aspiration. I think um, there needs to be some perf- some there needs to be some performative otherness, right? Like there needs yeah. to be th- th- like at least from the way you were describing it on the other show, it felt like to you a big part of it was not just the fact that she's a manic pixie dream girl is still in the way we use that trope. You know, she is she is quirkily hot, but she's still hot, right? Like right. the like to me the fan girl that you're talking about in the fanboy case is your part of the part of the liking the character is feeling better about yourself because you're not liking the hot one. You're liking the other girl. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, I think a female character either. Cause I've been, that's the other thing I was thinking about is like, how does this work with other characters? Like I mentioned Robin, Mm -hmm. um, we talked about that in the blog. I I I was thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And Robin, Robin, I think is complicated because I think it depends on which Robin you're talking about. I think like, you know, like, yeah, you said like Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan. Um, I would say like Moon Girl kind of fits that, even though she's on the younger side of things. Mm-hmm. Attic is a character that fits that. But I think it kind of also goes back to like Spider-Man. Spider-Man mm-hmm. kind of is almost like the proto version of this type of character. Yeah, no, I get it. Because he's distinct from a sidekick. The sidekick is like too junior. Like mm-hmm. you're not cool if you're Dick Grayson as Robin, like, you know, you're Batman's little kid, like junior partner, but you might be cool enough. And there might be something desirable about like Tim Drake or Damien because they're independent. They're like rebellious. There's something Dick that is a Titan. about them. Or Dick yeah. is a Titan instead of Dick is a Titan. Let me ask you a question. So is it basically that the idea that we're be- that, that the fanboy gaze is basically being self-congratulatory about the fact that you like somebody that doesn't like your I, I feel an affinity with. I would maybe put it that yeah. way with somebody who you feel is not like the cool person like because him. and you're projecting a certain concept of marginalization. Because, like basically, how do I say this? It's about being self-congratulatory as a viewer because you are identifying with the marginalized person rather than the cool guy who beats people up. It's a little bit. Yeah, no, it might be so. It might be self-congratulatory. I'm a little hung up on that because I think of it as more of a like, almost more of a negative of like, it's a, it's a, it's a certain level of like internal recognition 
Like you can look at, you know, you look at Superman or Batman and you know that like that's a power fantasy. That's what it's supposed to be. You know Mm -hmm. that you're never going to be that cool or that powerful. So it's a level of self-recognition that like, well, I'm not going to be that. I'm not going to be Wolverine. I'm not going to be whatever. But if I could be cool enough to hang out with them, but also in a way that like, you know, I guess what I mean by self-congratulatory is like, it seems like there's an element of like, ooh, how progressive I am because I'm identifying, I'm not doing the power fantasy. That's entirely possible. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but I mean, that could be my own blind spot too of like, you know, there's probably some level of, yeah, the manic pixie thing of like, I'm not, it's it's almost like the male version of the like, I'm not like other girls kind of thing. I was actually, so this came to a, this was when Matt was originally talking to me about this idea one of the things I was like, oh, it's a pick me girl. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you did say that to me. Explain that. So a pick me girl. And I was basically saying that's actually it's actually met. It's if, if we're assuming that this the fanboy gaze is, you know, boy, male nerds, um, it's the male nerd equivalent of a pick me, pick me girl. So a pick me girl is exactly uh, what Matt just mentioned is essentially it's a trope to describe women and girls that basically do the I'm not like other girls thing. And it is actually really I see that it, it happens in all kinds of spaces but especially I think happened in stereotypically nerdy spaces um, in the 90s and 2000s where basically women because you know women because they were nerdy and were trying to deflect I think and this is I'm, I'm talking about this both in the case of characters and also I saw it in actual communities of, of people who were into gaming and board games and all kinds of stuff where women would do the I'm not like the other girls thing to deflect a lot of the misogyny that was directed towards nerdy women I'm also imagining there are versions of this for other folks too but this is sort of like my experience of it um mm-hmm. and then the term pick me girls has kicked up uh uh-huh, in the last few years to describe this phenomenon and there's a lot of actually like pop musicians and people pushing back against this as basically like pointing out that this is anti uh this is this is basically feeding into misogyny because it's basically pitting women against each other and other folks um because they don't fit it's somehow it's, it's being self-congratulatory because oh i don't fit the model look how cool i am um and so the fanboy gaze felt to me it sounded to me it's like oh it's like the pick me girl but from the other angle and it by identifying basically with people that you're not as a male quote-unquote expected to identify with within the view of the male gaze it allows you to do this kind of like pick me moment of i'm better because i'm not like the other men when in fact it's playing into a lot of the same practices and beliefs albeit in a different way uh and we can talk about whether or not that's better or worse uh but it's basically passing off misogyny in the frame of nerddom in order to not make it appear as misogyny i guess is that that's what it strikes me as yeah no i think that makes perfect sense actually yeah because it is that like you know i'm not into like i don't know vampirilla or i'm not into like rogue i'm into like the cute nerdy girl you know, mm-hmm. so therefore I'm better than the guys who are just lusting over characters with like, you know, large mm-hmm. breasts or something. Right. I, I think also like, I think what's interesting about the fanboy gaze is I think this can also be said, like the sort of pick me fanboy gaze aspect, I think it'd be said of nerd culture in general. Like there's a lot of like nerd cachet of like, oh, I don't like mainstream things. Uh, mm-hmm. I like cool nerd stuff. And yeah. then also fetishizing the fact that nerds are picked on. Like, which I think is also an interesting aspect because now that nerds stuff is cool. Mm-hmm. 
can you like does that change how the the fanboy gaze manifests because the the quirky nerd girl is no longer like she's cool well do you have to do and i'm wondering is this part of just the you know the true fan thing right like you right. so like i think that we we're approaching this i think from because it's matt's theory and because I'm the one who glommed onto it, we're like approaching it from sort of the geek culture kind of way, right? Like where right. where you're like, oh, I mean, Kitty Pride was the example, right? But Kitty Pride is only cool in that she approximates the theoretical geek who's reading the X Men books at book, books at the time, right? But isn't this similar to in the music world, right? It's not. I mean, even like since the advent of rock and roll, yeah, okay, everybody likes the Beatles. Sure, you like the Beatles, but what obscure band do you like? Right. And do you know everything about them that's ever been done? Yeah. Well, or that there's a certain amount of cred. It's cool to know the, you know, the weird fringe groups that like, you know, that nobody's ever heard of yet. Right. Like I was, you know, I was listening to and then insert like anybody I name is going to seem too big. <laughs> so like because the entire point is to like pick the is to pick the weird band that nobody's heard. Well, I think the thing that's changed that complicates it is like, you know, the audience has changed because I mean, I do think that there's something specific about like, you know, using this example or using like, you know, 60s rock, rock music, things like that. The audience was, you know, it wasn't ever like just, you know, white dudes or white women or straight people or whatever. Right. But that was the presumed audience and that was the expected audience so all the like like you know that's kind of the frame of reference from like what is normative and then what is different from the norm now it's harder because like like you mentioned kamala khan kamala khan i think can fit in this but it's also a very different audience because it's probably not that assumed like you know young teen white guy who you think of as like the fan of kamala khan if anything you think of the fan of kamala khan as like young girls or you know women who you know women who look like her or something the, okay. the sort of the the representation has changed like the you know the the makeup of the audience has changed and so i think that changes what that norm is does that make okay. sense yes so i have a question for i have a question format that i think that wayne if he thinks about this for two seconds he'll know exactly what example i'm going to give so you're saying Kamala Khan becomes weird or different because there is an issue of other representation. Like she's a rare example of a well-known Muslim superhero. That is very important. She's a, she is, you know, she, she is othered in other ways other than just her nerddom, right? So here's my example of who I think is very much a fanboy gaze character in the way in which you've been using it, Matt. Um, Squirrel Girl. Squirrel Girl exists. Yeah, Squirrel Girl exists to be the, you know, no, it's cool that I like Squirrel Girl because she's not a big boob superhero. And she, you know, she solves problems like using her intelligence and stuff. And I, you know, this is quirky and weird and cool. And and Squirrel Girl, 90% of Squirrel Girl's audience is middle-aged white men. <laughs> like yeah. if you actually look at the demographics, it Squirrel Girl looks like it's a comic. And I'm not saying there aren't female um fans. I'm not saying there aren't kid fans, right? I'm, it, I'm one of them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, but, 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 but I say but that in the same as, way. She's, as, yeah, as someone who stood behind the counter selling comics for a lot of years, I can yes. verify. Right. <laughs> oh, like, I believe it. There, yeah, there absolutely are. I mean, but like there have always been. OK, she's not here today, but Hannah, our co-host, is probably the biggest Spider-Man fan I know. Right. Like she loves spider-man <laughs> she loves everything about spider-man but hannah and has since she was a little girl apparently 
but she's never been a teenage boy and never will be. And it's not, she's not the, she's not the obvious fan. And I think the obvious fan for squirrel girl, I think people think they're writing this for, for 13 year old girls. It's, it's mostly like it's older millennial white guys love squirrel girl. Yeah. 35 year old white man loves squirrel girl, it, it, but it's weird because you think it was being written for kids and it is, but that's, that's just the audience. Well, and you get into like the complication too, of like, you know, the less, the less visible audience too, because, you know, especially with comics, you know, a lot of times we're looking at it from the frame of reference of like, you know, the direct market and what's, mm-hmm. you know, what's selling in comic book stores. How is it doing on like the diamond charts, like all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know, and not necessarily, you know, putting it in the context of like, you know, is it a scholastic book? Is it selling? Mm-hmm. at like you know who's checking it out of the libraries because that's right, the other thing it's right. like you know how many kids are actually buying comics versus just like reading them for free mm-hmm. you know so it, it does get tricky but i do think like yeah they're like a large chunk of that audience is probably middle-aged you know white men probably honestly you could say the same thing for someone like kitty pride kitty pride is a very dated sort of reference yeah. you know for this of that like for our generation then you know even to the point where it's become like her uh, her i guess like her outsider status doesn't even make a lot of sense because you know there's a weezer song where they reference right right (laughs) and and, and the the demographic that i think most people would assume that characters like squirrel girl and and kamala khan are are aimed at that demographic they're not really reading marvel comics they're reading the telgamere yes yeah yeah, yeah, i mean and that's yeah that is that is a that is a problem with the i mean I guess that becomes where, you know, where we're direct directing the gaze, which is we talked a little bit about directing a gaze on the last episode. But if you're building a comic towards gaze, which we tend to, you know, act like it's bad. And, you know, we talked for a long time about, about why it's not necessarily wrong to do that last episode. But Marvel DC are building towards a certain audience and they're trying to expand their audience, but they know that their bread and butter is millennials and older. That's that's where Marvel comics, the physical comics are, that's where they make their money. Um, Marvel comics, the company makes their money from movies and TV shows. Um, Comics, the industry makes their money at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, comic book fans, but yeah. like honestly, the comic book store that I know and love does not matter in the grand grand scheme of things. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, Jesus, what 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 are some uh, giant days? Probably matters. What's um Telgemeier's um smile was the first one. Yes, yes, yeah. probably matters. Like almost certainly has sold more um, yeah. copies than anything Kamala Khan's been in in the last five years. Yeah, yeah, Rana Telgemeier and. And I'm quoting this from something I read a while ago. So, and this is maybe apocryphal, but Randy Telgemeier is the best-selling graphic novelist of the last ten years. Yeah, yeah. And and then if you add in, and if, and you can add in other stuff like just you throw in like a Lumberjanes. Um, you, you throw in all of the you know stuff that is this a comic? Is it an? Isn't? Is it a? Is it a comic? Is it a? Is it a um chapter book books that are for? You know, not young adults, but for child readers, for yeah. uh, for preteen readers, Captain Underpants, and yeah, Dog Ca- Boy yeah. And-, and those, and that's comics right now. That's mm-hmm. the important part of comics right now, and we dismiss it because we're because there's a preciousness about nerd culture, which is largely enabled by the fact that we got lucky and superheroes kind of took over the industry. But it's the same way; same thing happens with video games, right? Like it's really easy to say video games are a boys' club; only boys read video well, games. 
except that we're only counting like only boy only boys play video games if you literally only count boy games right like well, the and, best and, the best selling video game in years is like Candy Crush I'm sorry I'm sorry I was just gonna say we're also as you were saying we look at diamond sales figures and, and that sort of thing but you know, there's all this stuff online that people just look at for free Mav you mentioned Giant Days and you know I sold a lot of this store because I was a fan and you talk about fanboy gaze I was in love with that book and I am so <laughs> not the demographic of for that book but I, I just adored it but John Allison the writer of that has been publishing in that comics world online since 1998 mm, how many people new. how many people have seen Giant Days is one of his projects set in this larger world mm-hmm. how, how many people's eyes have been on John Allison's web comics for years mm-hmm. you know that that we don't see those numbers I mean you know, uh, does he have a bigger readership than Spider-Man maybe maybe <laughs> I, I think it's possible he's not making the money because you know a lot of it is just free online yeah no I think that's the the point about like the base of the audiences we pay attention to pay attention to I mean that's kind of that, that is absolutely an issue in video games I mean we know now that like especially when you include mobile mm-hmm. there's actually evidence to suggest that there actually might be more women who game than men mm-hmm. um, and even when you take out mobile uh, mm-hmm. it's it's actually one of the most it's it's become one of the one of the hobbies with the most gender parity. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I I saw just coming in the store, and once again, our store may have been an exception because we we pushed Raina Telgemeier, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we, we were on we were between two major college campuses, but you know, in the twenty some years I was there, I saw our demographic go from. You know, I, I remember very specifically there was a day when there were three girls in the store and one guy in 1999 it's like oh my god this is a record and you know, by the time I left the store not, it was easy 50-50 easily yeah. but, but, but I'm going to break that down by age in the 40 and above old school fanboy nerd culture it was still 80-20 mm-hmm. yeah I would buy that for, for the under under 35 under under 30 certainly easily 50-50 it may even have been more women well, and yeah, I, I would that. buy that I mean the same the, there's very similar trends in gaming like I think my generation so women who were born in like the late 80s and early 90s, I think that's the period in which you start to see like massive representation of women playing games and more importantly, like most of, I'm not saying there weren't female developers before this, but like there absolutely were, but like we, mo- most yeah. of like the strongholds of developers, female developers come from my generation because mm-hmm. we grew up with games. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and this is anecdotal about my store specifically. I know absolutely. there's still lots of stores out there that, that aren't, I mean, we, we worked hard to not only have material that brought in a diverse clientele, but we worked really hard to be a safe, welcoming space. And that's still not true of a lot of comic shops. Well, and I do think, too, that like, you know, for me, like this is what's without it being causal, like this is one of the things that's important about talking about like different types of gazes, because like, I mean, yeah, there's the element of like, why do I think Kitty Pride is cool? You know, OK, this is a, a thing that maybe kind of helps explain that. But it's also like the idea that like if you're starting with the male gaze, you're starting with this assumption of like this is what the audience is. And, you know, then you have someone like Bell Hooks talk about like the oppositional gaze, which both complicates the idea of the male gaze as listeners. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So Bell Hooks wrote an article or a chapter. I think it's called just oppositional gaze, black female so. spectators. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's specifically talking about how if Mulvey is saying that Hollywood is, and films are designed for you to look at this white female object of beauty and both desire her and identify with her that you that she doesn't do that as a black woman that like that's just you know that's not how she watches movies that's not how the black woman she knows watches movies and if you're assuming that that's kind of off-putting so her 
her approach is this idea of an oppositional gaze. So you watch it critically. You watch it to think about and analyze what it is that you're being essentially sold. Um, and so I think like... Or discount it from. Or discount it from. Yeah, it's a way to kind of like bring light to these sort of like structures and how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like those expansions of the gaze help to sort of expand the audience too. to say, even just to point out critically, like, no, the audience isn't just, you know, 10 to 15 year old straight white kids, like straight white boys. It also isn't just, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old like white men. You know, it is, you know, these other groups of people that are looking for different reasons and seeing different things. And so I think even if like, yeah, like Marvel presumably knows that, you know, the bulk of the audience for something like Squirrel Girl and probably even Miss Marvel is their sort of, you know, the Wednesday warrior, like that typical audience Mm -hmm. that if it can at least be presented as and sort of the character can be viewed from other perspectives and through other Mm -hmm. perspectives, then that creates a sort of space where that audience feels more welcome or that audience sees Mm. something that can bring them in. I I also think, I mean, just the the idea of reading in general, building empathy, you know, just there's a certain amount of any gaze, I think, that we are projecting ourselves into these characters. And yes, they're certainly, Mm -hmm. they're the ones that you can identify with more strongly. I think if you get to that point where, you know, talking about Giant Days again, it's three college girls in Great Britain. And I can see myself in all of them. Like I read those stories and I have either been or known all the characters in that book. So there's that, for me, there's this element of empathy in being able to recognize parts of myself in these characters who are very overtly not me. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's an important part of just fiction in general. And I recognize a lot of people have a tough time doing that. You know, they 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 don't they can't identify with something that's not overtly what they are. But I think as you read more, as you experience more, that's part of that experience. So I want to move a little bit towards um, the idea of queer gazes um, here, just briefly. Um, not for the way because we're not gonna, we'll probably Sorry. do talk more about queer gazes in general on, on another show. Um, but the way people typically, I think we talked last episode about the, the way people use a term in popular criticism is not necessarily the academic meaning. So people will often say queer gaze sort of as an analog of male gaze, right? Like, Oh, well, you know, if this is supposed to appeal to men, to straight, to straight men, uh, cishet men, well, this is supposed to, appeal to queer people which is not necessarily how we usually use it academically it's more about um the ways in which the viewer is positioned with queerness so this matters um particularly because of things that katia was saying last time about the ways um what does it what does it mean to have a um a presumably straight male um default player playing as Lara Croft, right? And I think that you end up with, and this is um, what Matt was just saying about identifying with Robin, right? Like, the if I'm aware, or or Gerald from Witcher, right? I'm aware that Gerald is supposed to be sexy. Gerald. When I, when I, Gerald. <laughs> <laughs> It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. 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 As a male player, so therefore, regardless of of how I how I personally identify, I am I am accepting queerness in just playing the game. Like, okay, so I 
I am less versed in queer theory mm-hmm. and the queer gays than you are. So, because I guess, uh, is that also true if you are anticipating that you are going to be attractive to the, as a male, if, let's assume it's a male player. Is that, mm-hmm. is it still queer, a queer gaze if you are assuming that only straight, like heterosexual women are going to be attracted to the character? Because my uh, thing is, part, I think part of the fantasy, I think part <laughs> of the fantasy of Geralt specifically, so for folks who didn't watch that episode, or let's watch that episode, listen to that episode, apparently we, it's uh, on YouTube just, too, you can watch it. That's true. Uh, so Geralt, like the, part of the point I was making is that in, especially the most recent Witcher, um, like, so all of the Witcher games have an aspect of like Geralt's sexual conquest, which as far as I am aware is entirely of straight of, of women. Um, I could yeah, be wrong about aware. that. And I'm not, I'm, I don't know the games as well as you do or, or the yeah, book, but it, as far as, as I'm aware, as far as I'm is aware not- is entirely, <laughs> I, I, I am not aware of Geralt ever having a heterosexual relationship of it, or a homosexual relationship or queer relationship of any kind. I could be wrong about that. Please leave us five star review and correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> uh, but so I guess like the game, the game presents Geralt as if he is an object of heterosexual desire insofar mm-hmm. as he is an object of desire. Does mm-hmm. that still qualify as yes. a queer gaze in this? Okay. For, for the same why. reason. Okay. For the same reason that even though you are you, I mean, and I mean by you, but I mean Katya, a cis white woman, right? Like I yep. mean you specifically for the same reason you as a woman, um, regardless of how, you know, uh, of who you are it's still male gazy for you to position yourself as Lara Croft. It is still queer gazy okay. for me to position myself as Geralt. Okay. <laughs> like it, 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 so it's, so the, so the queer, the queerness becomes, and again, it's weird and complicated because I can deny it all I want. Right. Like um, you can be, you can be a female, you can be a female player who plays Tomb Raider and says, I don't know why people say she's sexy. She's not, this is, this is only empowering. There's nobody could sexualize this whatsoever. And, and you're just you're just wrong right like now you might not do it but you but if you don't see how that how um Croft is sexualized in that way that's right. you missing something right so if you if i as a man can't see why there is like as you said as you pointed out last episode it's not just that he's sexy as a male power fantasy right um arnold schwarzenegger in conan is sexy as a male power fantasy you're that that movie is not made i mean women might lust after him but that movie is made for men to go hell yeah i want to be conan that's why that movie's made right um i guess i don't know that i agree that that's not true of Geralt. I, i think it's there but i think that i think that at the point in which you are using classically feminine visual angles in order to sexualize him. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it's all of this is constructed, right? So like all right. of it is just sort of a matter of opinion, but like it is clearly, he is clearly to the extent that I have watched and played this. And if you go back and listen to our episode on video games, I was not good at this, but, but, <laughs> but I played it enough and I watched YouTube cutscenes enough to see that the camera is following him oh, in the ways in which it typically would the, follow a woman. There is like a, a challenging gender roles. There are bathtub scenes that like, I'm sure that there are like old Hollywood, right. like frame for frame. So, um, the other example I used last week, I used Magic Mike, right? Magic Mike is clearly a movie that's made for uh, that's made for women. But like the way it's shot, you know, Channing, uh, Channing Tatum, if you look at the ways in which he dances in the rating man, men scene, like he is caressing his own body very much in accordance with how women typically do 
for male gaze inspired um, video. So therefore it becomes it, it, it beca- like you, you can argue a female gaze, but you can also argue a queer gaze is in effect when you're viewing that film. So so that's mm-hmm. so that's what, so anyway, that's the background for all the for all the yeah. questions. The question I'm really asking is um, if you're going to assume that for a fanboy gaze, right? Does this does uh, the the queerness of it becomes almost implicit in the way? Um, so Matt, you used like Robin as your example, right? Like I am supposed to um, want to be Robin, or I'll I'll go a step further and when we use Robin, I'll use Dick Grayson because of the ways Dick Grayson is typically very much in his comic books today, very much sexualized for an implied female gaze in a way that is um, very much how like the number of ass shots in an, in an issue of Nightwing the comic are phenomenal. <laughs> it's just <laughs> and, 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 and characters comment a lot over time. Yes, it's it's it, it is he is constantly sexualized to where um you know where where oh my god that that ass is is like something that like um Batgirl or Catwoman will say right yeah and it's and it's common enough to where that's part of the character um and it becomes but because we don't normally do that with men you know it, it, because it's weird it becomes a question of what you know are we queering this are we making it weird by doing this and and, and it goes to it's what Mulvey wanted right it's what she wanted yeah. was to be able to, to sexualize men the same way and still have them be empowered which I'd argue Nightwing can be well and that's I mean that actually gets to like I guess my question to respond to your question because I have like two questions that I don't think are going to like clarify if anything I think it's just going to complicate it more mm-hmm. um, and it kind of relates back to like you know the Witcher too is one does for lack of a better word does the object itself change what the gaze is so can you have a male gaze you know as it's traditionally sort of like thought of can it function in the same way um if it's projected at you know this idealized version of like heteronormative masculinity you know Mm -hmm. In the TV show, you're looking at like a ripped Henry Cavill with his shirt off. Mm-hmm. Like that's conventional sort of masculinity in terms of like you know versus like would a queer gaze need to be something that is different from that? And then the other question would be like thinking about like Dick Grayson um, and Nightwing specifically kind of relates to that too. Is it that he's being subjected to like a female gaze or a queer gaze, or is it that he's a male character that is being shown in the same way that the male gaze would typically show a female character? And I don't know what the answer to that is like i think it's both is the answer yes yeah. the answer is i mean I, I i i see what you're saying and i think that the answer is you could view it either way right like it, maybe maybe we only see these things as and I'm, I'm using queer here to mean non-heteronormative um mm-hmm. because we are so unused to as we said in the last episode in Malvi's big quote man is unwilling to gaze at his exhibitionistic like right the fact that it is so rare that we sexualize men in the way that we constantly sexualize women makes it seem weird when we do. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. I guess what I wonder is like, you know, is there a way to get to a gaze that functions in that way that doesn't sort of center that, that isn't so centered around and built around like, you know, traditional masculine heterosexuality, you know, and, and there might not be, you know, it's, it's that thing of like, how do you talk about say, patriarchy? Like, and then, yeah, sure. Yeah. Is that the answer though? Like yeah. engaging itself inherently male is, you know, and I think about this with like power fantasies. That's kind of my, one of the things I like am studying and thinking about is like, you know, if superheroes are 
a power fantasy and traditionally like a white male power fantasy. What does a power fantasy look like if you're part of a marginalized group? Because it shouldn't mm. function in the same way, but how does it function? And like, again, it's that like, I hopefully will know the answer when I write my dissertation, but I definitely don't now. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? Like it shouldn't fun- say more about what you mean when you say it shouldn't function in the same way. Like the gaze or the power fantasy? The power fantasy. The power fantasy. If, so if like, if, if one of the things that's inherent in a, you know, a white male superhero power fantasy is solving problems with violence, is physical strength, is authoritarianism. If all of these things are sort of bound up in the idea of like the fantasy of power, if are those things so intrinsically linked to whiteness? Or can you think about power that is different than that? That isn't as like, you know, white and masculine and authoritarian and patriarchal. Does that make sense? Okay. I think, yeah, I think I follow. I guess I was, I was, I was trying to figure out if you meant like, when we like, were we talking about a, 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 a version of a power structure outside of masculinity and patriarchy? Or were we talking about people who are not men would would not have masculinized power fantasies because i think the former is true the latter i don't think is Mm -hmm. um we absolutely see examples of people who have who are not heterosexual males who have yeah traditionally masculine like traditionally heterosexual male power fantasies um see every video game ever and that's what i'm getting at with the idea of the gays too is like you know, is it possible to think about the gays in a way that isn't in that same way right. so sort of wrapped up in these ideas of like, I don't know, like patriarchal consumption and desire and, you know, like Mulvey talks about the whole like to be looked atness and the idea of like the camera or the frame sort of like basically like objectifying and I can't mm. remember the word that she uses, but like literally kind of like segmenting the women. You know, mm-hmm. you see them fragmentation. Fragmenting, yeah, she fragmentation. Says. Yeah, fragmentation. Like mm-hmm. so that's if that's the way that the the male gaze sort of is theorized to work, can there be a gaze that doesn't do that? Or is it so wrapped up in the form that it becomes <laughs> something that you you can't help but do it? Well, I, I think what you're asking is there a version of the male gaze that isn't patriarchal. Or a version of like other gazes that don't function in the same way that the male gaze functions, but are still mm-hmm. gazing. Right. Are we too? And I mean, we globally now way down a rabbit hole, but like, no, 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 no. I no, think, it's I think a good this question. is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, I, and it's I, basically, I think, I think what it's kind of asking is it's like, is there a form of the gaze that isn't inherently objectifying? Because, yeah. it's, because like one of the central issues of the gaze yeah. is the treating person, at, like is the person as object problem, which, um, which becomes a structuralism question, right? Because so here's where it becomes weird, right? Like all fictional characters in in all t- all texts whether i'm reading something looking at a comic looking at a movie playing a video game right like we talk about fictional agency in a way that doesn't really exist all characters are objectified they are fictional characters that's what, what they, they are. are right so like right. so like if i'm if i'm talking about if i'm talking about does lara croft have agency no, because she is incapable of movement without me pushing a joystick, right? Like nothing about her is real. Well, it's, it's about the I mean, it's about the it's illusion. It's an illusion. Yeah, it's an illusion of agency, which is always weirdly constructed. And I don't know. So at, at the point at which you are an object which is being watched, to at some level it's going to always be objectifying because that's what, you know, that's what it is. Right. And then I wonder is what I wonder if at the point at which I can enjoy this at all, I was, you know, as regardless of how enlightened I may be, regardless of how many degrees I go out and get, I'm still a man who was raised in the 20th and 21st centuries in a patriarchal society. There's, there are assumptions about what narrative is to me that are just patriarchal and Mm -hmm. to Katya as a woman, there are assumptions that are just patriarchal because you live on earth, (laughs) you know, like, like, I don't know how, I don't know. 
there's only so much you can step outside of it. So yeah. I wonder if uh, can can I mean I think we can be better, but I I just wonder maybe the entire idea of gazing is just to objectify. I was just gonna say I think you can expand it in certain ways. Like you know to me the distinction you know just going back to Kitty Pride briefly or like the fanboy mm-hmm. gaze. The distinction is that like you know that character is allowed a certain level of like interiority that's a part of that gaze. You know the the interest that she has the nerdiness or whatever like that you don't traditionally have in sort of like this the hypersexualized hyper objectified like mm-hmm. this woman is just like a physical object and that's like that's maybe progress but it's still there's still something consumptive about it there's still something it maybe isn't quite as like overt as objectifying mm-hmm. but it's still possessive or something does that you know you're kind of you're projecting yeah. something into it you're taking something it's still it, it, i mean not to get into the well, excalibur thing too much but like it's still that idea of like megan yeah. as the character that that, like constructs herself as what Brian Braddock wants and desires mm-hmm. rather than judging the character on right. their own merits or so look, I mean I'll, I'll yeah. put up in the YouTube version I'll put up a picture of the two of them together but you're looking at Megan who is the epitome of beautiful blonde supermodel and Kitty who is the nerdy Jewish teenager well yeah and, and not just to compare the two but even just to say that like there is still you know it's that like it is that manic pixie dream girlness of like the idea that like oh Kitty Pride is this like sort of slightly more progressive idea of desirability like Katya mm-hmm. said there is a certain self-congratulatoriness to it that I'm fully on board with now that like it's that like you know I don't like I'm not ascribing to the regressive objectified sexualization aspect of masculinity but I'm still looking at Kitty Pride as like an object of desire potentially for me that you know that that's part of that character's existence um but is it fully outside of like i have a you question uh, uh, go, go for it so even the way matt describes it there i, I think in when we're talking about gazes um even though Malvi was insistent it didn't have to be this way we have a we tend to default to talking about the sexual nature of them right and we weren't mm-hmm. earlier like we were talking about the uh, matt started with the talking about the the um the inhabiting the exhibitionistic and the narcissistic portions of it right but we we tend to like talk about the objectifying part as though it was only the sexual part like that's the that's the part that we sort of we we tend to key into right like sure. like that's the problematic well, bit the, yeah, it's, it's what I think the average person finds the most, if they find it upsetting, probably finds the most upsetting in general. Right. Not but like necessarily even last time, even last time we talked about you and I especially talked about one of our problems with it is people tend to use the idea of the gaze to limit female sexuality, which is just as controlling in the other way. Right. Like to say, oh, well, well. and this is actually OK. I'm glad you brought this up because this is what I was thinking about uh, a second ago is I think part of what we're talking about here is in the absence of patriarchy mm-hmm. is objectification still as harmful as it is under patriarchy. Because I think like if I if I'm ventriloquizing Mulvey, I, I think Mulvey would say no. I think Mulvey would say what makes objectification damaging is patriarchy. And so I wonder, be, partially because still, I'm not sure Mulvey can, can I'm not sure Mulvey can can exist can believe in a world exist where patriarchy ever quite goes away. So, but sure. so I don't know how she'd answer it. In a theoretical pipe dream. Well, because if, yeah. I think in order for you, to, I, 
the reason I say it's kind of ventriloquizing Mulvey here is because, I mean, Mulvey does suggest that diversity of objectification is what matters. Um, not just the absence of it, like not, we're not trying to erase all objectification ever. And I think in order to hold that, uh, that position, you have to acknowledge that there is some version of objectification that isn't harmful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here is like, what would that, what, what version of, what version of objectification isn't harmful? Because I think, I mean, this gets to the, I mean, this, this gets back to, uh, kind of what we're talking about with Laura Croft. There are absolutely women who love Laura Croft. She is very mm-hmm. controversial in the gaming community for men, women, and everybody. But mm-hmm. uh, there are, there, there are, you know, she is, she's popular for women too. And mm-hmm. I think it's because not all objectification is bad for all people at all times. It is more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think okay. that there, I, I, I think that there is maybe, I haven't fully formulated this, but maybe it's because there's a version of of objectification that doesn't completely erase agency. I think you're right. I don't. I don't know. I don't know so, that I'm right. It's just in order for this to make sense, I, I think there has to be the, at least the possibility of a version of objectification outside of right. patriarchy that isn't harmful. Because we like documented, there are people who not only do not mind being objectified—men, women, all kinds well, of folks—yes, but also might even enjoy it. And we don't want to like erase right. those people either. Right. That's where I was. Yeah, that's why I was asking about. It. Okay, so again. <laughs> it's almost I'm going to almost try to sidestep the patriarchal issue because I think that um, Maldi would argue and does in in other parts of the book that people don't read. Um, <laughs> only Matt has read. Uh, no, Matt's read it. I know. <laughs> you read oh, it. I, haven't read whole, I haven't read the whole book. I've just read okay. the essay. Yeah. Okay. Ne- never um, well, it's it shouldn't. So she very much does not want to preclude the ability of exhibitionism right like she put it in the original essay for a reason because if you enjoy if you derive pleasure from choosing to exhibit yourself sexually that should be okay right um and and that is so like because because that is sexuality with agency as opposed to just being consumed so yes like but then the question becomes i mean people try to people complicate it and i have no answer for this right oh well because you but you you hear this a lot and then i hate the argument because uh, but you'll hear people say well she only feels like that because she was raised in a world where she doesn't know that like there's nothing she's raised in a world where being pretty is so she feels that she has to be and she has and i i hate that because essentially now you're just arguing against free will you know you're also (laughs) saying that well and it's also it's another way of taking away agency right in this case specifically from women but it's like it's basically by saying i mean this is the whole problem of of certain kinds of feminists Mm -hmm. uh basically say that women who present in a heteronormative way are somehow cannot possibly be feminist i mean this is a version of that argument right right which is why i like to like even when we're talking about gays theory a lot of times i like to look at the non-sexual parts of it because again the point isn't so much about just you know do you get horny when you look at this right the point of of it of the gays was the camera positions you to only think to necessarily enjoy the uh, cinematic performance as a male and sex is the easiest way to point it as that but it, but it's but it's also talking about just the way action works not just right. not just, it's it's talking about everything so um, Lara Croft's action 
is in that game is certainly masculine presenting you know like um i don't know about the later ones because i haven't played i to be fair i haven't played tomb raider since you know in like literally a decade but certainly in the older games it's you know she is i mean you said this last time she is fundamentally she's a male, she's a male, a male. hero with boobs. yeah <laughs> and and it's just like um, she fights she fights in the same it, way it, 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 she's indiana jones yeah it's more complicated yeah she's indiana jones it's more complicated in it's not quite like saying she's a male character with boobs is a little bit reductive um she yeah. does deal with uniquely like female issues and i'm not even criticizing it, you know that should be okay right like the entire right. the entire point is you shouldn't you shouldn't have to default a hero to male or a hero to white or a hero to straight in order to, you know, like you should be able to have diversity in the standard narrative. If, if the, if the gender is irrelevant, then why can't the gender be female? If the gen- if the race is irrelevant, why can't the race be black? If, you know, if the sexuality right. is irrelevant, why can't the sexuality be bisexual? Right. It, 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 you should be able to allow these things. So I'm not even criticizing it so much as saying, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the idea of, of even of if we're aware of a gaze at all, then I think that means we're aware of objectification on some level, which was the, which was your original question, right? Like I, I, I think it has to be, it has to be objectifying or we just don't care. And I don't mean it, which, you know, so in the aspirational world of, like you said, once we get rid of like all patriarchal forces and all racist forces and all, you know, okay. The after then, times. Yeah. And then, yeah, and then wonderful. We're all jobs and, you know, I welcome it, I guess. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if we're thinking about like, you know, more expansive gazes or different kinds of gazes, mm-hmm. if it's helpful or if it's like kidding ourselves to say, like, we could also just look at it in terms of just the two questions of like, who gets to look and what are they looking at? And once mm-hmm. you break it down to just that then you can say like you know it doesn't necessarily have this sort of like the patriarchal you know sexualized aspect to it um it doesn't Mm -hmm. inherently have to have the objectification um it's just defining like what you're looking at and who's looking and then how and maybe how they're looking Mm -hmm. Uh, and that might be a good way or might be a way to kind of help decenter the idea of like it has to be about objectification it has to be about like it has to be problematic or something you know for lack of a better word but we we do live be all jokery about it we live in a society right like you know like there's uh, no matter what no matter how empowering um women might find Laura Croft or or the thing that we talked about last episode where we were talking about like the desexualizing of Power Girl right and then there were a lot of women who said no I I want Power Girl to have big boobs and I want her to have the sexy costume because she's my hero that makes me feel good about being um, a larger woman right like that was that was a, a fair criticism that people had but at the end of the day there will always be an element that is in the that is currently positioned at the top of the hierarchy of society that's going to go <laughs> big boobs you know and like can you just not escape that and is it okay that you can't long as we're doing the work elsewhere like i was just gonna say can you separate it so that like you know, is the goal of, you know, critical work or thinking or whatever to solve certain problems or just to sort of like talk about them and not necessarily ignore them, but like to talk about different aspects of them or to expand on them or to, you know, affect the way we think about them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think just Mulvey's not going to write an essay that solves the problem of patriarchy. Like, right. and right. I think she would say that. I just being more aware of the stuff. I think, you know, a lot of the work is just bringing it to the fore, uh, mm-hmm. the academic gaze, for lack of a better term. 
um, yeah, the, you know, the, just looking at, at these things in such a way to bring these issues to light and talk about it and be more informed as consumers of this media mm-hmm. and, and, and more aware of our own way of interacting with it. Yeah. So I want to ask it before we end up, um, cause we're going to, we're getting real close to resolving nothing, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it just, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, and, and, and this might be, you know, a, a future gaze show. So, you know, um, but like, if we're, if we're going to look at the fanboy gaze, uh, I want to think a little bit about the non heteronormative ways in which we're going to call it fanboy gaze for the, which, you know, it's, it's still going to be that, um, even if it's, you know, even if it's not necessarily just a male character or, um, uh, you know, a male, I'm sorry, a male viewer. Right. Um, I'm thinking about the ways in which say certain shows are accused of like queer baiting or something. So I'm thinking about, (laughs) uh, I'm thinking about things like, um, I would say there is certainly an element of fanboy gaziness to most CW shows sort of previewing a little bit of what we're talking about Mm -hmm. next week. Right. So like if you're, if you're, if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at the way any of the shows in the Arrowverse work or any of the shows outside of the Arrowverse where you're looking at uh, um, Charmed, uh, Kung Fu 100, like those ep- those shows are about hot teenagers in diverse cast uh, living in, you know, in like, you know, living in this world where they fight problem X, right? Yeah. River- Riverdale, the, the, Arrow, the, the, any of them. But being hot first. But being hot first, right? So all of those shows, for instance, very, very much go out of their way to be um, LGBTQ friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, aggressively so, right? Like there, there, there are a lot of, like Riverdale absolutely is like, okay, we want to make sure that there are clear, you know, Kevin is gay and we're going to point this out and have Kevin have gay problems and he's going to be trying to find love and you know he's going to be and this is this is part of the story right and then we're going to go and Cheryl and um, Tony Tony is bisexual Cheryl is a lesbian and they're going to be in a relationship and we're going to do this and they're going to have problems they're going to have couple problems just like everybody else and we're going to and this becomes the show right um, but there is I mean I, I shouldn't say there's no way um because of the nature of what Riverdale is, regardless of what you do with that, with those characters, it's still going to be just kind of male gazy hot every time Tony and, 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 um, and Cheryl kiss because they're two very attractive women kissing. And that's, or, or, or do a five minute cheerleading routine. Yeah. yeah which happens so, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're, so, and then you and then the question becomes, is it, you know, is it, is it real? Is it both? Like, you know, you're, you're I think there's definitely a, a fanboy gaze. Like if you look at anybody who's, who's shipping, um, Lena Luther and, and Supergirl, right? There's like a, there's a, there's clearly fanboyness that go or fangirlness that goes into this, right? Um, but it's, it, I, I don't know that you can escape the male gaze part of it. And just because you're focusing on the queer gaze part of it or the female gaze part of it. And that might just be okay. That might just be how gazes work. And I think, I think the thing that gets really complicated and really timely now, like, I don't know if you were on Twitter earlier, but there's like a whole thing blowing up with like Anthony Mackie talking about, you know, the sort of the slash, you know, the slashing of like him and Bucky or mm-hmm. like Bucky and Steve and his response raised really horribly. If you read the quote, I don't have it in front of me, um, mm-hmm. but it's basically boils down to 
can't do like like homosexuality is fine but can't two dudes just be friends um which kind of gets at that thing of like you know are they trying to appeal to every audience and if you're trying to appeal to every audience are you always going to do it sort of like can you do that without doing it badly can you have the like hey here's queer representation here here is lesbian representation or bisexual representation and also here are hot women making out for like the heterosexual dudes who want to see that or does that just kind of mess everything up by trying to do both um and i think it's the same thing like marvel disney doing their sort of like hey we're totally open to this thing we're not going to confirm it does that actually just make it worse or harder to like does that make the problem more complicated than if they just came right out and said yes these two characters are straight or yes these two characters are not straight you know resolve nothing yeah yeah i think this is definitely where we're going to be following this on you know mm-hmm. a future episode stay tuned because i don't know that we have answers for it and mm-hmm. I, I i mean i think the answer <laughs> to the you know the rhetorical question Matt just asked and the one I asked before that and the one Katya asked before that the answer to all of them is yes I said that as a question with a question mark at the end because like, I, I, I like so much on this show it, it, it's um it's very much a we are trying to you know engage in the academic conversation and the reason we always do these so we've resolved nothing is because they're not necessarily questions that have answers they're questions that have more questions mm-hmm. which is sort of how academia how works and certainly cool. and certainly criticism and yeah it's also why we have a show yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how we keep getting new episodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> and in that light, my last sort of thing that I wanted to kind of mention because I like I think it's okay. important, but I don't have I don't have any answer for it. Is mm-hmm. like where does the content creator come in? Because like I was thinking mm-hmm. about Mary Two versus like mm-hmm. the you know the Kitty Pride of the fanboy gaze, mm-hmm. and maybe the reason that like oh Kitty Pride's fine, but like this other character is Mary Sue is Kitty Pride is created by, you know, presumably straight white men. And these other characters often were created by women coming in and creating content or, you know, the not real content. And so that's a whole other thing to we kind might, of like We might at. need to do an episode just on the Mary Sue, the concept of Mary Sue's. Um, yeah, we've talked about it a lot in different yeah, episodes. It, it is often... It is often used in the derogative, particularly mm-hmm. when attacking women in a way that I think is unfair. Because, again, I said way, way back when I wrote my review of when uh, Force Awakens came out and people were like, oh, Ray is a Mary Sue. No, she's not. And I was like, yes, she is. So is Luke. So is fucking Batman. It is kind of the point of superheroes. Yes. In particular, Batman. Batman yeah. has fucking anti shark repellent on his belt. On his belt. OK, right. he's, he's a Mary Sue. He's all ready for anything. Yes, I think that's. I think that's the key, though, is that like Batman created by men, like right. Luke Skywalker created by men, Ray, <laughs> as far as certain a certain segment of fandom is concerned, created by Kathleen Kennedy running. Yeah, uh, but she wasn't. She was created by J.J. Oh, yeah. Abrams and just deal with it. it, it but yes, yeah. yeah, so, but, but I think that I think there is a there's very much a well, but girls. And I think I think that's one of the issues that I think we definitely need to get into. But also I I, I do to to your actual question of I, I want to be able to say the creators don't matter because I think someone I think a Mary Sue 
and fanboy gaze character that gets a pass very frequently is Hermione Granger. Hermione Granger absolutely fits this. And I need the creator not to not to matter. I need to say the author is dead because otherwise I cannot enjoy that character because her creator is a monster. So which like I I mean I need to be able I need to be able to dislike um JK Rowling personally and still enjoy Harry Potter. Do not take this from me. And I don't think I'm alone there, right? Like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just same same thing as with Kitty. You know, she's the nerdy girl. She's the girl I'd be friends with, and you know, also maybe she'd kiss mm-hmm. me. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And and I think that's that's the fantasy of Hermione. It's the fantasy of Kitty. And in both cases, it's uh, I said this on the other show, Matt. It's wrong. <laughs> Kitty Pride would hate you. You only think yeah. that because you're, you're because you're the nerdy boy. If you actually read those books. Kitty doesn't like little nerdy boys. Kitty likes jocks and uh, who are cooler than you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that note>. yep. <laughs> yeah. Lots to cover. More coming up. Matt, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that we have, I don't know how much we helped yeah. you work on the theory, but it was interesting for us. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's been very helpful. Thank you very much for having me. This has been fun. <laughs> Come back again. Uh, anything you want to plug? People follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Um, Not a lot to plug. This summer is a whole summer. Um, but like I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, um, on Twitter at a boy called monk. Um, that's such that's a cool where I am most of the time. Hmm? That's, that's, a, that's a great handle. I love that one. <laughs> that's actually a comic strip that I did for like a very brief period of time. Like I think like a year, um, 10 years ago, but now it's stuck because I made a logo with Photoshop and a Photoshop <laughs> class. And it's like, Oh, well, that's who I am. I am now a boy called monk, um, but it's memorable. And when people, places won't let me be just Matt um, because everyone is Matt. That helps. So, um, but other than that, I very, very occasionally write on a blog called Kino Club 313. Um, hopefully writing more this summer. Um, but it's really just a matter of like, when do I feel like doing anything in the summer? And, awesome. and I'll write some stuff. Very cool. And Katya. Uh, you can technically find me on Instagram at just the nerd kid if I ever decide to post again because it's been like a month. <laughs> and Wayne. Uh, my Instagram is tetrock2012. Look at my pretty photos and well, give sure. us a five star review. <laughs> well, give, a, give us a five star review. I don't yeah. know if you can five star review his photos. You can just hit the like button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can find um, a way to give his photos five star reviews. You will get bonus points in the game that doesn't matter. <laughs> you, know you, what? Can, you, you can comment. You know, you can post a comment and just hit that the star button like five times. Or no, what I what I really want to see is I, I want to see people go to you know Apple Music or sorry, go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave us a five star review saying how much you like Wayne's photos. <laughs> that would be great. It's like, like it would just be very confusing. Also point out that eugenics are bad, you know, because, you know, yeah, we, we, like, right, yeah. we, we like to keep that alive. If, if but, you 10 know, people just, comment eugenics bad and give us five star reviews, we'll make a t-shirt. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, sure. Yes, I would absolutely do that. Eugenics bad. I, I That could be our first t-shirt. Maybe we'll actually make a Patreon one day or or like a tea public or something. We Yes, if people comment and, and give us five star <laughs> reviews about eugenics bad and we get 10 of them i will absolutely make t-shirts because <laughs> that that is that is a great stretch goal i like that <laughs> uh, but but yeah in so yeah please if you are still listening to this nonsense subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify
Spotify or wherever the else you get podcasts from and leave us that five star review on iTunes. You know, eugenics bad. Show me a T-shirt. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places at Vox Popcast. You can follow me all those same places. I'm at Chris Maverick. I forgot. To, I forgot to plug myself before I started the show plugs. But, you know, I'm all those same places. And you can follow the show on all the podcast places and on YouTube. See, it's out of order now. I'm very confused. Subscribe to our YouTube, like and subscribe and hit bells. And yeah, I've been I've been really enjoying our YouTube show lately. And, you know, I think more people should subscribe to our YouTube. I put a lot of work into the YouTube show, <laughs> um, particularly on episodes like this, where we're talking about stuff like the gays and you want to be able to see visual representation. So do that and show all your friends and make us famous. And I don't know. Because I'm not really sure how algorithms um, work on YouTube. It's a big mystery black box, but liking um, videos and commenting seems to be important. So interaction <laughs> helps the algorithm. Absolutely. And follow our blog at www.voxpodcast.com where we talk about what we're going to be talking about next week. Next week's uh, next week's a fashion show. Um, Katya. Um, hey. and yeah. Yeah, we're going to there'll be a little more uh, male gay stuff next week. We got we got some interesting stuff coming up. So um, subscribe to us at www.voxpopcast.com. You'll find out what we're talking about next week. You can give us your your comments that will help inform the show and, you know, give us things to talk about just like on this show. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, Building Ever So More Epically and Playing Us Out. I'd once again like to thank Matt for joining us. I'd like, to thank you for, yeah. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.